This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. It's now my pleasure to introduce tonight's featured speaker, international best-selling author Anne Paget. You all know her probably from her seven highly acclaimed novels that she has authored, including her most recent work, Commonwealth, as well as Bel Canto, recipient of the Orange Prize and the prestigious Penn Faulkner Award, State of Wonder, The Magician's Assistant, and several others, and I know all of them. They're all fabulous. But just as important is her role she continues to play as a champion of literary culture. In 2011, Anne opened Parnassus Books with her partner, Karen Hayes. She declared after the last of Nashville's bookstores was closed that she had no interest living in a city without a bookstore. Since the bookstore's opening, she has become a strong public advocate for independent booksellers, championing books and bookstores on NPR, The Colbert Report, Oprah, The Martha Stewart Show, The CBS Early Show, and many others. She also served as honorary chair of the 2013 celebration for World Book Night, spurred by her passion to get books into the hands of people who might not otherwise have access to them. Anne was recognized for her outstanding advocacy by Time magazine in 2012 when she was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She is indeed an influential force in the literary world, and I'm honored to invite Anne to the stage now. Please join me in a well-welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's like you're giving me a little gift. Hi. You're the nicest people. Um, And I really enjoyed having my picture taken with every single one of you this evening. Um, It's wonderful to be in San Diego. And are we technically in San Diego or are we technically in La Jolla? Well, yeah. And everybody's like, well, well, I mean, really, we are in, okay, San Diego proper. Happy to be here. Um, I hope you do feel influenced by me tonight. That's one of my big goals. Uh, I'm going to talk about something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is fashion. And I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then there's going to be a brief audience participation section right in the middle of the talk, and then there will be a Q&A at the end, which is always the most, seriously, it's in the schedule, um, which is always the most fun part. So recently... I was giving a talk somewhere, I have no idea where, and at the end somebody raised their hand and they said, how do you feel about the work of John Updike at this point in time? Where do you put Updike and Bellow and do you think anybody actually still reads them? Yeah, no, I made that same sound when they asked me that, but I was really, really interested in that idea. I am a huge Updike and Bellow lover. Uh, I know. <laughs> and, and yet I thought, this is really a matter of fashion. And I had never thought of literature as fashion before. And the fact that there was a time when Updike and Bellow were all in fashion, and then they started to come out of fashion. 
One of the reasons that I never thought about literature in terms of fashion is because I never read literature, I never read in a period. The way I always read was kind of like Henry James, Henry James, Dickens, Jane Austen, Donna Tartt, Philip Roth, Marilyn Robinson, Trollope, you know, and I just read like that. Uh, and I thought I was very well-rounded, although I look back and think I read almost exclusively literary fiction, and I read very little contemporary fiction. I mean, I probably read 10 books of contemporary fiction a year, and all I do is read. So in November of 2011, I opened Parnassus Books with my business partner, Karen Hayes, in Nashville, and that was because the independent bookstore went out of business and Borders went out of business, and those were the two stores we had. They were both 30,000 square feet. And everything in my life upended at that moment. But the thing that really changed was how I read. I'm going to just backtrack for a second because this is always so interesting to me because it because really essentially because it's not interesting. But as an author, every time you have a book come out, you do a bunch of interviews and people want to know something about you. What's the interesting thing you do? And when someone's interviewing you and they want to know the interesting thing that you do, what they really want to know is how long ago you kicked heroin. Um, and... <laughs> You know, what you, what you did in those years you were touring with the Rolling Stones or when you got out of prison or whatever. That's what people want to know. And I didn't have any of those things because all I ever did was read. And I was an impossible interview subject. But... Then I opened a bookstore, and when all you ever do is read when you open a bookstore, that turned out to be a really, really good thing. But I no longer read the same way. From November 2011, the way I now read books has completely changed. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that we have something at called uh, the First Editions Club at Parnassus Books, which is, I like to say, fruit of the month club that doesn't rot. And what that means is every month we pick a book and we get, we have like 600 people in our club now, we get 600 first editions of the book, we get the author to sign them, and we mail them out. We pick the book every month. So that means that I am forever reading books that won't be published for another four or five months because I have to get ahead of it. And because I don't actually work at the bookstore that I own, I am the only person on staff who has the time to do all the reading because everybody else is working all the time. So not only am I not reading Henry James anymore, I'm not actually reading books that have been published anymore. All of the books that I read are books that are going to be published the next season. And I remember so well, we had been open for three or four months, and we got word from one of our sales rep that there was a really great book coming up in a few months that I needed to read, and it was called Station Eleven. Did any of you read Station Eleven? Yay! By Emily St. John Mandel. And I 
it's a post-apocalyptic novel. All you have to do is say the words post-apocalyptic novel, and I am out of the room. There is no way in the world I am going to read post-apocalyptic fiction. I am somebody who has read The Awkward Age three times. Well, guess what? Station Eleven, as those of you who have read it know, was brilliant. I mean, it was just absolutely fantastic. And it really upended the way I was thinking about reading. Flash forward to last year, I was signing 3,000 copies of Commonwealth at the Ingram Book Distributor Warehouse, which is just outside of Nashville. And it takes a lot of time to sign 3,000 books. And you have a whole team of people who slide them and pull them for you, which is really fun because now as a bookstore owner, I do that. I, I became friends with Caroline Kennedy because I was sliding and pulling books for her for four hours, and you really get to know someone. So one of the people they had at Ingram was somebody who was brought in just to amuse me while I was signing my name. And after about this sixth hour, she pulled out her phone and she read to me something called the Read Harder Challenge by Goodreads. And any Goodreads people in here? Yeah? Oh, you got, I love talking to library crowds. You're so good. So the Read Harder Challenge, and she's, there were 24 categories, and she's reading them on her phone to me. And I, I nailed it. All 24. Now, you were supposed to read all of these books in the course of the year, but I, I cheated a little. They were books that I had probably read in the last year. And I, I have cheat cards because I wanted to make sure that I got to read some of these to you. They were take this test sometimes, and they change it every year. A nonfiction book about science, Lab Girl by Hope Jaron. You guys... You got somebody in your life who likes science, you like science, Lab Girl by Hope Jaron. An unbelievable tribute to trees. Uh, a book of essays, Unspeakable by Megan Dom. Middle school readers. I never read middle school books before I read, uh, before I owned a bookstore. I didn't read them in middle school. They didn't have middle school books when I was in middle school. It was a late invention, young adult. I mean, it was like you got to the end of Little House on the Prairie, you read Christian Lobin's Daughter, and then you were straight on to Bellow. Um, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, best middle school reader uh, ever, probably. An audio book that won an Audi Award, The Bully Pulpit. These are seriously like all things that I had done. Um, a book by or about a transgendered person. One of my favorite books last year, In the Dark Room by Susan Faludi. Any of you read In the Dark? What is that book flopped? It was so fantastically good. Read In the Dark Room. So Susan Faludi, for those of you who don't know, her parents got divorced when she was in high school. She hadn't seen her father in almost 30 years. She gets an email from him that say changes, and he then tells her that he has moved back to his native Hungary and had a sex change operation at 78. This is a book. You, and it turns out to be a book about Hitler. It, you never see it coming. It's absolutely amazing. Um, 
Yeah, see, I'm, I'm a bookseller. Okay, <laughs> historical, historical fiction set before 1900, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, uh, a book that I demand every single person in this room read, a book about politics evicted by Matthew Desmond. Yes, any of you? Yes. Okay, it won the Pulitzer, friends. It won the Pulitzer last year. Evicted. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you read Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers? Yeah, lots of you. You know why? Because it's more fun to read about poverty in Mumbai than it is to read about poverty in Milwaukee. Um, yes, challenge yourself for that. A food memoir, My Kitchen Year by Ruth Reichel. Great book about cooking your way out of a depression. Um, a book about mental illness. This is my last one. I'm not going to take you through all 24. Uh, Adam Hazlitt's Imagine Me Gone, which was a terrific novel from last year. So I was, I was shocked to find out that I could just read in such a wide range. I also read trash now. I had never read trash before in my life. The Rainbow Comes and Goes. Any of you read that? Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt. Oh my God. So trashy. So unbelievably good. The fact that Anderson Cooper has not killed his mother. We should all bow to his greatness. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I never thought of authors as living people. I thought of them as dead. And I had a really profound experience when I was in eighth grade going through my literature anthology. And we got to a Eudora Welty story. I remember it was a visited charity. And it said, 1909, parentheses, 1909-empty space, close parentheses. Eudora Welty was still alive. And it was the first time I saw someone in a book that was still alive. And now I am only reading people who are alive. And, and I'm not even saying that that's good or it's bad, but unless I close this bookstore, it's probably never going to change. But because of this, it's the first time I started thinking of literature as having fashion. Now, we all know the different things in our life that have fashion, right? Like, for example, fashion. Um, when I was in college in the 80s, I, sold, I sewed shoulder pads into my jacket. I, I narrowed the legs of my jeans, and I cut all my hair off on one side of my head. And I did not think of myself as a victim of fashion. I thought that I was living in the present moment. Uh, everything we do is influenced. How we eat, how we look at medicine, how we look at education, how we look at politics, how we look at law, how we look at parenting. When I published Commonwealth, uh, it, a lot of it takes place in the 70s, and there are six siblings. And people came up to me all over the country when I was on tour and said, these people are such horrible parents. They were just shocking. And I thought, well, not only were they not bad parents, but everybody's parents were like these parents, which is, 
you put your kids outside in the morning, and if they came home by dark, it was a good day, right? There were no cell phones. Nobody, your parents never knew where you were. They didn't know what you were doing. They were doing their own thing. I remember once asking my mother to play Monopoly with me, and she looked at me and she said, oh, that's a children's game. Adults would never play children's games. Like, what happened to that? And, and of course, anybody who grew up in another time believes that their time was the correct time. And what we're living through now is, in fact, the really weird time. So I was trying to put together a list of things that were very fashionable and then were out of fashion. Uh, Frosted Flakes, one of my favorites, was once considered to be the breakfast of champions. Um, breast milk, very fashionable, and then not fashionable. Breasts, think of the fashion just of breasts. Um, yeah, it's really changed. I mean, our, our, our first lady would not be thought of as fashionable, say, in the 1920s. Um, Oh, oh, this I loved. I got this from my husband. He's a doctor. Blood pressure. Did you know that blood pressure's fashion has changed? That it used to be, he said, that the systolic number, the top number, should be 100 plus your age. Right? And I said, so what about, so, so everybody just take a moment. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 54 in a few minutes. And the idea that my systolic number would be 154, I said, well, what about the diastolic number? He said, nobody ever cared about that. <laughs> there was no fashion in that. Okay, things that were very, un with things that were fashionable, unfashionable, and have come back. Coconut oil. Eggs. Electroconvulsive therapy. Now, oh, a round of applause for ECT. Thank you very much. So, do you know why electroconvulsive therapy went out of fashion? It's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. First the novel, then the movie. Suddenly, the whole country thought that it was savage and cruel to run voltage through a person's brain. And then... In fact, the book and the movie fell out of fashion, and then ECT came back to, from what I understand, very, very good effect. Um, and that is also, I like to make a brief aside on that, a book that I used to teach back in the days when I would teach. I loved One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I taught it over and over again. Didn't read it then for 20-some-odd years, went back and read it again, hated it, hated it. Books don't change. We change. Our response to things change over time. Going back to Updike, I reread those rabbit novels recently in the last couple of years. The most unspeakably, insanely misogynistic books in the world, and I loved every word because they are so brilliantly written they are so fantastic and they are such a 
such a witness to the age and the time and how we change. Um, wait, one more thing, and then I'm going to open this up for audience participation. Leeches and maggots, both back in fashion. Do you know this? Like they were in, they were out, they're back in now. All right, so somebody give me something here. What, what was fashion, not fashion, back in fashion? Shoulder pads, leggings, leggings. The gymnastic pants. Do you remember? The, with the stirrup that went under your feet. Very bad idea. Bacon. Bacon. All right, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Bacon was in, then it was out. We were afraid of nitrates, right? And now you can't get anything in Nashville that hasn't been cooked in bacon. And it's very chic. Bacon. Um, I, body suits? Are body suits back? Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anything else? What? Fascism. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Suddenly, fascism is back in fashion. Um, Hey, laugh all you want, friends. Um, you think about, oh, martinis. Are martinis in and out? They're in. Always in? Are they always in? They never went out? What about the, the era of white wine spritzers? All right, you Californians here. Isn't it interesting how we can look at other times and really see what was going on by what we were reading. So if I say, and I don't care if you've read these books or not, if I say Dickens, you know something about that time. Instantly, the fashion. Jane Austen, yes, right? Okay, electric Kool-Aid acid test. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, bonfire of the vanities. Yeah, absolutely. The bonfire of the vanities has come back? Or just the mentality. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh, Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, the gateway drug, I always call it. So it makes me wonder what we're reading now that we will be embarrassed about in a generation or in five years. Fifty Shades of Grey. All right. Can I just talk to you guys about Fifty Shades of Grey for just a minute as a bookseller? It is so interesting. Those books came out right when we opened the store. And what was so fascinating, they were fan fiction. And they were based on the Twilight novels. And they had been written by this woman in Australia 10 years ago. And they had been languishing on Amazon. Nobody found them. Then somebody did find them. And they, there weren't physical books, right? They were just online. But the problem is if you have a Kindle account, most people's Kindle accounts is linked throughout their entire family, which means if mom downloads porn, little Jimmy's going to get it on his reader. So all these people who don't normally come to bookstores were coming to the bookstore to buy porn. Um, and it was adorable. I mean, it was, 
It was really like um, 42nd Street in 1978. You know, people really, like, they were interested, but they were really nervous, and they were afraid they were going to get mugged on the way to the bookstore. And we actually would provide this service where we would put a plain brown paper wrapper around mom's copy of Fifty Shades of Grey, and they all came back. You know, it's like they would come back and say, oh, that book was horrible. It was so terribly written. It was appalling. Is the second one here? Do you guys have the second one? The year that book came out, every single person at Random House, from the CEO to the people in the mailroom, got a $5,000 bonus based on that one book. So a lot of people say to me, you know, how do you feel? Did you sell it? Were you offended by it? And I really do believe that reading is a gateway drug. So if you don't read anything, you will never read Updike. If you read Fifty Shades of Grey, if you go into a bookstore, if you have a positive experience and somebody's nice and makes you feel welcome and you can say, all right, you know, you liked this book, but let me recommend Scott Spencer's Endless Love, a fantastic, really one of my all-time favorite novels and the worst movie ever. <laughs> Just put that out of your mind. But it has a 17-page sex scene in it. So, you know, you can read porn in literature, and you can have that positive experience and keep coming back. Uh, the, actually, the trend that I found more troubling was adult coloring books. <laughs> and I have not figured out what the link is, but it is direct. I'm not joking. As a bookseller, it went from porn to coloring. And... Um, Last week, we opened Parnassus Books in the Nashville airport, which was incredibly exciting. Yay, airport. Because I spend half of my life in the Nashville airport. It has always been my dream to own the airport bookstore. So I've been going to the airport and working at the airport for eight hours a day, stocking and pulling books. And they had crummy books in the old bookstore. And one of the things that they had was a cabinet that was the size of this lectern, four shelves full of nothing but adult coloring books. And they're skinny. And they said, okay, we're going to take this from four shelves, this was my job, to like 10 inches of adult coloring books because it's over, trend's over, nobody wants them anymore. And I got to sit on the floor and go, no, no. No, I would open them up, and then I would be like, okay, birds, those are pretty, and I would put them. They had an adult coloring book of Trump. Um, not joking. Trump as the Statue of Liberty. Trump is Michelangelo's David. Um, it, uh, it, Trump as George Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, no, no. Doctor Who. Doctor Who coloring books, but like 30 of them. It was, it was really something. So the whole question of how we learn um, and how we change from fashion and from books, and there was nothing in the world less fashionable than opening a bookstore in 2011. It was bucking fashion as much as a person 
possibly could. It was the, the gaucho pants of business maneuvers. It was the leech. Um, and yet, because I spend my life going out and talking to readers, I had absolutely no doubt that it would be a success. And Jack White is pressing vinyl records in Nashville. Yeah, and doing so well with them. And you start to see everything comes back around. Save your stirrup pants. Save your body stockings. They will be back in fashion. And in fact, the independent bookstore did come back, and we have doubled in size, and we have a bookmobile, and we are thriving. And the other thing that is wildly out of fashion that everybody will tell you is dead and done and over, libraries. Libraries. Yeah, because what is Google, ladies and gentlemen, but the big reference librarian in the sky? And everybody says, you don't need libraries. I say this as somebody who has been a member of the Friends Board for Vanderbilt Library and for the Nashville Public Library for years. People who don't use their libraries think that there isn't a need for libraries anymore. And we know differently, and we are constantly shown how important libraries are. For one thing, libraries house the fashion. Libraries hold every phase that we abandon and we believe we will never need again. Libraries understand that everything is coming back. And why this is so important, especially the eighth floor, is because the thing that I see in the bookstore is that this idea that we are living in a world where we can get anything we want on our computer at home with a click has made us more and more isolated and more and more polarized because we are living at home on the little channels that we find that sound like us. And what we need is more common space. What we need are places that we can come together with our different ideas and see each other in our humanity and not be isolated. After the election, people came to the bookstore. We have dogs in our bookstore. Uh, yeah, we have five dogs. And um, you can go to the website, parnassusbooks.net. You can go to the shop dog diaries, and you can just look at pictures of the dogs and hear about what they do. Um, and when you go to the Nashville airport and go to Parnassus in the airport, there's a giant picture of my dog Sparky on the cash register. People came in the day after the election and said, I don't want to be alone, and I want a dog. And we would just bring a dog out, and people would just sit there together with their books and be in a space together. You cannot take your whole family to anthropology after dinner. You need a library. You need a bookstore. You need places more and more where we can come together. So I want to just wrap up and talk a little bit about the books that are in fashion right now and what I am seeing in terms of trends. Um, lots of really, really important books about race right now. 
White Rage by Carol Anderson. These are nonfiction books. It's 160 pages if you take the end notes off. It is the most essential reading for the year. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, uh, Jasmine Ward's Fire This Time, and then for fiction, Jasmine Ward has a book that just came out called Sing, Unburied, Sing, and I think that it will be the big winner this year, along with George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo, uh, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, Ben Winter's Underground Airlines, those would be probably my favorite books on race that are coming out or out right now. Books on the immigrant experience have been really important. Uh, a book called Exit West by Moshan, Hadid Moshan, and The Leavers by Lisa Ko, Wakey Wang's Chemistry, uh, Americana by Chimamande Nguze Adichie, and a book called Pachinko. Has anybody read Pachinko? It just came out by Min Jin Lee. I had dinner with Min recently, and she was saying that the book that she could not have written Pachinko without. Pachinko follows four generations of Koreans from before, probably from the 20s to present day, living in Japan. And it's about the problem of, of racism in Japan against Koreans. She said the book that completely enabled her to write Pachinko was The Good Earth. Can you think of a less fashionable book than The Good Earth? Can you think of a book that more people clamor to get off the shelves? And she said she loved it. It was, it was a book in which a woman looked at people who were not like her and saw beauty and humanity and wrote about them beautifully. And it was that story that made me think, I want to do more to promote Updike. Um, and I, who never get the chance anymore to go back and read a classic, the classic I just reread this year, which was my big treat, was Franny and Zoe. Franny and Zoe is so magnificent and holds up so beautifully. And I also want to put in three books that do not reflect any kind of a trend. And those are three funny books. Because the thing that people ask for day after day when they come in the store, they say, I want a smart book that will make me laugh and that is funny. That is the hardest book to find. Um, the book that we always sell is Maria Semple's Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But everybody's already read it. So three books that have come out this year that fill that slot. Tom Parada's Mrs. Fletcher. Um, a book that I absolutely adored called Less by Andrew Sean Greer, which is hysterical. And, of course, David Sedaris's Theft by Finding, and it's the very, very best David Sedaris book. David Sedaris uh, told me that his partner, Hugh, said that the book should be called David Copperfield Sedaris, and it, <laughs> it's exactly right, because it's just his journey through life. Okay, I really want to do the question thing, and I'm so blind by these lights, so shout. Raise you. Yes. Right 
I can see you. Oh, and then the lights just went down as if by magic. Hi. Yes, of course. Nori, how are you? We met earlier at the photo station. So um, my question is, you know, this is the new um, great era of television. Right. Uh, Netflix. They're making TV for these uh, stations. So have you been approached? Is there anything you might consider in the way of writing great, for TV? Great TV. For episodic um, TV, no. specifically. I, and, and you know, there, there are some very weird things about me, and one of them is I do not, under any circumstances, watch television. And I haven't since I was in college. And by that I mean if the tornado is coming through Nashville, I don't turn the television on. I don't watch it for anything. And... Um, I'm so disconnected from that. And people are always saying, oh, the very best writing is on television. And you have to, I know you don't watch television, but you have to binge watch Orange is the New Black or um, what was the one about cooking meth? Breaking Bad. That's the one everybody's always trying to get me to watch Breaking Bad. It's not that I have anything against it. It's just I don't have any more time for my eyeballs to do anything except read. Uh, I also don't use a cell phone. I have never engaged in any form of social media, and I've never texted. Uh, So, yeah, imagine how much fun that is. My last comment is I love John Updike. I love John Updike. Love him. What's your favorite? The keys in the bowl. The whole notion of the keys in the bowl? Yeah. Would that have been my parents? Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I hear you. The whole rabbit series. The ra- I mean, you don't have to... Anybody who wants to go to graduate school and get an MFA, just stay home and read those rabbit books. Everything you need to know about writing will be in those rabbit books. Okay, let me tell you something really unfortunate about giving speeches, is you have a really good idea, and then you get to the end of the speech, and you think... Damn, I forgot to tell them that part. So I'm going to tell you this thing as a complete non sequitur because it was such a cool thing. The cat in the hat, right? The cat in the hat contained 236 different words. Do you guys all know this? Right. All right. So this is the other reason to support your library because we are in a political moment where we are operating off of 236 words again. And if we just want to keep the language alive, we have to support the library. Okay. I just needed, I meant to say that earlier. It was such a great fact. All right. Oh, okay. We are recording this, so make sure they have a mic. All right. So mic person is the wonderful Mariah. Wait, there's your mic. Yes. As a woman writer, right? do you feel that people like Roth and Herzog and Bellow were deeply misogynist, or do you feel you can channel their genius and ignore their misogyny? I can channel the genius and ignore the misogyny. Yes, I can. And I think that it was... Fashion. It's kind of the whole point of the talk. 
It was the Playboy Club. It was flying Pan Am in which the the stews, as we used to call them, wore six-inch skirts. It was a whole part of our culture. What I really wonder is where did those guys go? You know, like, did did humanity really change? Were they just all driven underground? But in that time, again, we couldn't even see it as misogyny. We just saw it as the time in which we live in. I think one of the most interesting exercises is to think about how we will be judged in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. What will people look back on this civilization and say, like we look back on the Updike novels, I cannot believe that they thought this was okay. And I was, I was part of a discussion in Italy last summer and one of the people who was there was a guy named Kwame Anthony Apea. And the reason that you know Anthony Apea is because he is the ethicist in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. But he's also one of the greatest philosophers that we have in this country right now. And he's at Princeton. And he said there are three categories by which we will be judged 100 years from now. And it will be environmental rights, animal rights, and immigrant rights. And those are the three things that people will look back on our society and think, I'm ashamed that you are my family. Yeah. Hi. I can't see you at all, so just, it's all right. Hi. Hi. So my question is... um Okay, in, in an age where the death of printed books and brick-and-mortar stores had been predicted but has failed to come true, what have you learned about readers and the future of the written word? Yeah, well, the future of the written word I think is fine, but I also think that we need to constantly work at it. I am, I am basically an optimistic, cheerful, Pollyanna-ish person, which is why I opened a bookstore in the first place. <laughs> Uh, but what I was told, not only were bookstores dead, but that books were dead and that people weren't going to want to read anything longer than a tweet on their phone. I don't think that that's true. But on the other hand, every now and then I have reason to go back and read a New Yorker article from the 70s. Um, I was writing something the other day or doing some interview in which I, I mentioned Peter Taylor's 1986 novel, A Summons to Memphis. And I pulled up the review of the book on the New York Times website. And it was approximately 10 times longer than any review that is run on the Times website now. So, I mean, we're definitely shrinking, but we're also, again, changing. And I don't think that it is a steady downhill progression. I just think that we're changing fashion, and we're growing. And I, I believe in the written word, believe in books, believe in libraries, believe in printed matter, and I think that we'll keep going on. I have more questions about the survival of the species and the planet than I do about the survival of books. I think that there is a perfectly good chance we'll die before the books die. I, don't, I wouldn't clap for that because that actually is... That's not good news.
there, there are questions here, if we have microphones here. And there, we're, there's someone there. I'm just like, see the little shadow hands popping up. I wonder what your opinion is of graphic novels. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, my opinion of graphic novels is it falls into the large category of things that I never, ever thought I would have anything to do with. And then I opened a bookstore. And now, you know, graphic novels, terrific. Love them. Um, love them more for middle schoolers and young adults, for the most part, than I do for me, although I was a big fan of Alison Beckdale's Fun Home before it became a Broadway musical. I was giving a talk somewhere, and I had a ride to the airport at 5 a.m. This was years ago, and there was another writer in the car, and it was Alison Beckdale, and I said, what do you do? And she said, I write graphic memoirs. This was probably before the bookstore even opened, and I thought, graphic memoirs, are you kidding me? And she sent me a copy of her book, Fun Home. And when I got it, and this is something that's happened to me maybe twice in my life, I opened the envelope thinking, I'll never read this. I looked at the first page, I sat down, and I didn't stand up until I was finished. Um, Jules Pfeiffer's last graphic memoir about killing my mother was also very good. And speaking of wonderful graphic memoirs about killing my mother. Uh, Roz Chasts, can we talk about something more pleasant? Unbelievable, unbelievable book. Anytime you think, I don't like X, something will be delivered to you to show why you don't like it. I had a religion teacher in college, Al Sadler, may, may God rest Al Sadler. Uh, who used to say that prejudice was simplification because if you could cut out one whole group, then you would have so much more time because you would never have to think specifically of anything or any person in that group. So you could have a prejudice against graphic novels. I don't like post-apocalyptic fiction. I don't like westerns, I don't like science fiction, I don't like graphic novels. All that means is you just don't have to look. You don't have to read them. And then once you know that, you feel stupid and you start reading them. <laughs> Good, they're close. They can both have a question. Hi. I'm, Hi. A, I'm an inveterate opera lover. Ah. And, um, of course, I'm referring to Belcanto. And you write incredibly perceptively, I believe, about singing... And there's a scene in the in the in the book where you talk about the priest actually hears the main character singing for the first time, and I'm curious if there is a singer or an experience that you had that sort of related to that that section in the book. When I wrote Bel Canto, I knew absolutely nothing about opera, and I took a crash course that I set myself on. I found a wonderful book by Fred Plotkin called How to Fall in Love with Opera, which is the best introduction to opera ever. The wonderful HD broadcasts um, were not yet in play. You guys have a wonderful opera company, but in Nashville we don't. Um, so I, I, I did it in a very 
slipshod sort of way that I taught myself as much as I could about opera. That said, now I love opera. I go to opera all the time and I hang out with my girlfriend, Renee Fleming, and we, you know, go places together. And so, I, I mean, the whole thing about me and Renee and opera and bel canto, people say I wrote that book about her and I even say it sometimes and she says it and I just think at this point it's probably true but I didn't know her when I wrote the book but so many people thought the book was about her that when it came out it just sort of happened and and oddly one really quirky little story when I wrote that book and maybe you will know the answer to this question sir the signature Op, the signature aria of Roxanne Koss in the book was Lawali. And a friend of mine who was my British editor and a wonderful, wonderful opera aficionado read the book in manuscript and said, you can't use the aria from Lawali. Do you know why? No. Because everyone will know that you cribbed it from the 1982 French pop film Diva. And that was exactly what I was doing. <laughs> and so I said, okay, give me another signature aria that is really obscure and will make me look super smart. And he said, Rusalka, Song to the Moon, Dvorak. Well, at the time, there was only one soprano who ever sang Rusalka which is the stupidest opera in the world. If you've, I mean, and that is a really low bar because there are a lot of stupid operas. But the fact that you have an opera in which the soprano is mute for two-thirds of it, I find very problematic. And that the only good aria is sung in the first five minutes of the opera. But that was the, that was the aria that I put in the book without ever having seen or heard it. I just said thanks, Christopher, and then did a, you know, search on the manuscript, pulled out Lawali, stuck in Dvorak, and it turns out that that was Renee's aria, and that was how we became friends. Yeah. Yes. You, sir, with the microphone right behind you. On a lighter side, um, lighter this, than this that. university was founded by Scripps Institute of Oceanography, and I, and I love Clive Cussler's uh, books that are about re uh, finding deep sea treasures and, and lost steamers and so forth. Right. And I just wondered if you had read them and if you had any opinion about what he has done to interest young people in getting into oceanography. You know, this is one of those those speeches in which I just blast you with the enormous number of books that I have read, and I have never read Clive Cussler. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I, you know, it's just like playing stump the band or something. Um, just when you think that you've read it all, you realize you haven't read Clive Cussler. And, and, oh, I'm going to regret asking, and I should ask you in private, is he still with us? Okay, good, good. So I have the chance to read a future Clive Cussler. Okay, we'll all sleep a little better tonight knowing Clive is okay. Okay, I see a bunch of waving hands. 
It's on? Okay. All right. So the last question, sorry, because we're running out of time. All right. No, somebody's um, got to take her off yeah. stage with a hook. <laughs> yeah. So um, many of your novels end with a signature style of, of ending. And sometimes people seem to be very angry with that ending, and sometimes they're perplexed. So is it a signature style, and is that uh, on purpose? And can you tell us about it? You know, if I was going to rephrase that question, it would sound something like this. Your endings aren't good, and they're irritating to so many of us. Do you mean to be that irritating, or does it just happen? Um, no, I actually, I, I don't feel that I have a signature style of ending. I think that they're great. You know, I just, I, I do. I, I really feel like I end, I end a book. This, I'm going to make this into a good question. Okay, you ready? <laughs> um, this is the difference between commercial fiction and literary fiction. Commercial fiction puts you in the back of the Lincoln Town car and drives you there. Which means if you like John Grisham, you're going to have the same experience as your husband who likes John Grisham. Those books are not asking you, and I'm not complaining, it's great. Everybody wants that experience at some point. But the book is not asking you to interact with it. The book's responsibility is to entertain you. Uh, I always like to point to Gone with the Wind as one of the most classic, beloved examples of a book that everybody's going to have more or less the same experience. Literary fiction goes back to what I was saying earlier about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which means there can be a time in your life that you love it, and a time in your life that you hate it. But literary fiction is like being in love. It's chemistry. And I bring half, and you bring half. And it's why you'll get a rave review in the New York Times, and you'll get slammed in the San Francisco Chronicle for the same book. And your neighbor loves that book, and you hate that book. And then maybe you read it later, and you hated that book, but now you love that book. I read Anna Karenina when I was 21, and I loved Anna and Vronsky so much. And Kitty and Levin and the peasants bored me to tears. And I read it again two years ago. And Anna and Vronsky were intolerable <laughs> and self-obsessed, selfish, hideous narcissists. And I loved Kitty and Levin and the peasants so much. For that to work... The writer has to leave space for the reader so that the reader can enter in and have that experience of chemistry. I try very hard to always end my books at the moment in which I feel like you have enough information that you can take the story forward. The book belongs to you. I never read any of my books again. I never think about them again. They are yours. They are absolutely dead to me. People come up all the time and say, what's your favorite book? And I'm like, I, I don't know, 100 Years of Solitude? And they're like, no, 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 of the books that you wrote. I, I, who reads those? I have no idea. I, I never think about them. The only book that I like is the book that I'm working on. So, so yeah, I want people to take responsibility. I want people to have an open place to come into the narrative and then 
you keep those characters and you think about them going forward. Beautiful people of San Diego. So nice. I really, really had a good time with all of you tonight, especially my friends at my table. Um, this is a wonderful library. It's a wonderful university. And supporting reading and the stewardship of change is always a good thing. And I'm proud of you for being here and proud of you for doing it. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you.